morning, Chapel Hill. Great to worship with you online, and it is so great after our little blizzard last week to have all of you back here in person. Our numbers continue to grow, and for those of you who haven't given it a try, the water's good. Wouldn't you say jump right on in here on Sunday morning? Good to see you out there. On Tuesday, I took my dad in to get his second COVID vaccine, and, uh, and we came to the front door, and there was a, a nurse that met us at the front. She took our temperature. Uh, she gave us new masks to wear as we made our way on inside, uh, but then she, she did this. She gestured to me kind of furtively, and I, I thought, isn't this sweet? She's going to give me a little bit of advice on what I might do to help make my dad's experience more pleasant. How wonderful of her. So I leaned in toward her, and she leaned in toward me, and she whispered, your zipper's down. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I need more assistance. So it was a little bit humiliating. Nothing like the humiliation, though, of a man named Howard Hughes. How many of you have heard of Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes was a dashing and brilliant entrepreneur. He parlayed his small company into a billion-dollar empire of aviation and real estate and entertainment. But Hughes also was eccentric, and the older he got, the more eccentric he became, if you'll recall, and reclusive. He really turned into something of a hermit. He lived his last years in a penthouse of a hotel in Las Vegas with the windows blackened out. Uh, he, He wore Kleenex boxes on his feet to protect against germs. He saved his own urine in mason jars and stored them in his closet. He stopped cutting his hair, stopped cutting his beard. He allowed his fingernails to grow into cloths so that at one point an aide described him as the witch's brother. This once handsome, dashing man of the world died a pathetic and humiliating shadow of his former self. In today's story, you're going to meet another once powerful, dashing, impressive man who was similarly humiliated. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done something that was so embarrassing or shameful that you wanted to crawl away on your belly? That is literally what happens in our story today. And if that is true for you, then I want to give you some hope at the end of this story. I think you're going to find some hope. I want you to watch for three acts in this story, three themes, okay? It's the humiliation of a king, the tenderness of a believer, and the restoration of God. The humiliation of a king, the tenderness of a believer, and the restoration of God. We are in the book of Daniel. I hope you're enjoying it. I am enjoying it. I think it really speaks to our time. Daniel is the book about a young man who was kidnapped from his homeland of Judah, and he was forced to serve in the court of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, the greatest Babylonian king who ever lived. But over the years and decades, God used Daniel, this little exiled Jewish boy who grew into a man, God used this, his influence to change this king in remarkable ways, including spiritually. 
For instance, when you come to the opening verses of today's chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, when you read those opening verses, you would think you might be listening to the psalm of King David into some, instead of some of the lines of a pagan king of Babylon. Listen to those opening words in chapter 4 of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! This from a pagan king. Peace be multiplied to you. I find that particularly ironic and kind of rich coming from the guy who used to pull the arms and legs off of his enemies for fun. He was a violent, um, ruthless conqueror. But under, under the decades of influence of Daniel, who was, I think, the ultimate subversive leader after Jesus himself, this king changed. And he was slowly coming to recognize the power of the one true God, Yahweh. And then the king had a dream. The king had lots of dreams, as it turns out, and it was often the way that God was speaking to him. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a huge tree that has grown up into the heavens. It is so so vast it reaches into the heavens. It covers all of the sky, and it is a strong and beautiful tree that supplies all of the shade and, and protection for every living thing. But suddenly in the dream, an angel comes down from heaven and chops that tree down. And all that is left of this once massive tree is just a, a stump in the middle of the field with a piece of iron around it. And then the angel oddly begins to speak to the stump as if it were a person. The angel says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. That was the dream. This was the dream, and as was often the case, only Daniel could interpret it. And he says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree is you. Your empire has grown and grown. It is expansive. It is powerful. It is unmatched. But he goes on to say, because of your arrogance... You are going to be humiliated. You're going to be struck down. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to become like a wild beast in the field. And that is exactly what happened within the year. Listen to the next part of it. And all that Daniel predicted came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And immediately the dream was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Quite an image, isn't it? How the mighty have fallen. There had never been an empire like Babylon in the history of the world. And Nebuchadnezzar II, this guy, was its greatest king. But now, he, it is foretold that he, is, he goes mad. 
He, he, he is driven from his own palace and out into the wild where he grazes on grass like an animal. He is exposed to the elements. He has long, stringy hair, claws for fingernails. It is the utter humiliation of a king. In 1985, while the, the Berlin Wall was still in place, I visited a museum called the Pergamum Museum in East Berlin. It was spectacular. And there, the most spectacular of all of the exhibits was this one I want to show you a picture of. This is the blue-tiled Ishtar Gate. Look how small the people are. That is built inside of a building. This is a gate from Babylon. And it's one of eight gates in the inner wall of that city. And inside of these gates was something else. It was called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Have you ever heard it? It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The only one remaining are the pyramids of Giza. Now, guess who built those gates and built the hanging gardens that existed within them and all of the rest? Nebuchadnezzar, this guy that we are studying about. So when we read about him standing on top of his walls, surveying his kingdom, he might have been standing on that very gate that we were looking at earlier. He had a lot to be proud of, and he was. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? One of the things that Daniel teaches us again and again is this. It is God who installs people in positions of power. In chapter 2 we read, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Kings, presidents, prime ministers... They are all installed by God. They are all removed by God. Sometimes they are good. Sometimes they are evil. Sometimes they are a source of blessing. Sometimes they are a source of judgment. Sometimes they acknowledge God's authority. And more often, they steal his glory for themselves. And still, Daniel would teach us, God appoints all authority and by now, Nebuchadnezzar should have known this. Yahweh had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar through many dreams. His servant, God, Yahweh's servant Daniel, had been the one who had interpreted these dreams. God had delivered his servants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. These were all spectacular things that he had seen. By now, this king who had ruled under Daniel's influence for 20 or 30 years should have realized that he held his position of power by permission of the Most High God. And he kept forgetting that. And on that day when he stood on his wall, surveying his kingdom, patting himself on the back, God had enough. And Nebuchadnezzar was struck down in humiliation. Everything was taken from him. He lost his mind. He ended up on, in the fields exposed to the weather, scratching his food out of the ground with his claws, the most powerful man who had ever lived, crawling around on all fours eating grass. Utter humiliation. God has never been fond of prideful people. Let me just say that again. God has never been fond 
of prideful people. The Proverbs tell us that the Lord tears down the house of the proud. James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God had had enough with Nebuchadnezzar's ego and was about to serve him a big slice of humble pie. And it's easy for us to kind of point and smirk at this image, this vivid image of humiliation. But before we do, we might want to take a good hard look at ourselves. How easy for, is it for us to look at our family, our wealth, our business with great pride at all that we have accomplished? God has been working on this lesson in me for a very long time. Way back when I was doing youth ministry, I used to speak about my programs, my kids, my successes. My mentor, Pastor Dave, used to chasten me for using my word, the word mine. He said, don't say my. He said, stop calling it your program. It is arrogant and it is dangerous. But it took the longest time and moments of deep personal humiliation for me to get to get to that point, to learn that nothing is mine except my sin. All that I have has been given to me by God. And Pastor Dave is the primary reason you will never hear me call Chapel Hill my church. And it is not my church. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar had trouble learning this lesson too. And so God drove him to his knees and out of his mind, literally. And so we begin with the humiliation of a king which was met with the tenderness of a believer. When Daniel heard the king's dream, he responded with incredible tenderness, with a softness of heart. Listen to what he said. Then Daniel was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Daniel, let not the dream of the, or the interpretation alarm you. But Daniel answered, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, I don't want you to suffer what you have just dreamed. You know, Daniel had every reason to hate this guy. He kidnapped him. He changed his name, changed his identity, forced him into a life of servitude and exile from which he would never return back to his home. He tried to execute three of his closest friends. These are all good reasons for him to resent Nebuchadnezzar to hate him even. And yet Daniel continued decade after decade to serve Nebuchadnezzar faithfully. Perhaps even to have an affection for him. Why do I say that? How else would you explain the word dismay when he hears the, the dream, when he understands what that dream meant? He was dismayed. He couldn't even speak for a moment because he was mortified at what this king, I think a king he had grown to care for, was going to suffer. Daniel had every reason to wish this man ill, but God gave him a tender heart toward this humiliated king, a broken heart for a broken man. This quality of tenderness, even toward our enemies, and especially toward the humiliated, ought to be a hallmark of Christian community. Alas, too often it is not. Too often we revel in the fact that the bad guys finally get their comeuppance. 
Our church is still kind of reeling and recovering from the news of a moral failing of a world-renowned Christian leader, someone we respected, someone we loved. And there is so much for us to lament about this, much to condemn about his behavior, much to lament about the suffering of his victims and the resultant consequences. But I pray that we would do so with, with broken hearts rather than hard ones, with the tenderness that Daniel teaches us in this story. So we see the humiliation of a king, we see the tenderness of a believer, and we see the restoration of God. The amazing punchline of the story is that after a period of humiliation, we don't know how long exactly, maybe seven years, that's a long time to be crawling around in the grass, after a period of humiliation, God restores Nebuchadnezzar to his right mind and to his throne. Listen as we continue with the story. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. These are the last recorded words of King Nebuchadnezzar II. The last words of this pagan king are words of praise and honor for Yahweh, if you can imagine. It sounds like a convert, right? It sounds like Daniel converted this guy. But then you'd say, well, wait a second, this isn't the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has praised Daniel's God. In chapter 2, after the first time that Daniel interpreted his dream, we read that Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. He said, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. He seems to worship the Lord Yahweh. And of course, right after that, he built a giant golden statue of himself and ordered the world to worship it on pain of death. Later, after the miraculous deliverance of God from the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar decreed that no person in the empire should say one naughty thing against Yahweh. He said, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Sounds like a conversion. And yet right after that, he stood on his palace walls glorifying himself for all that he had built. And now for the third time, after his sanity and his power have been restored, once again, Nebuchadnezzar praises Yahweh. And so, here's my question. Ought we to take his repentance seriously? He's a three-time loser. This is foxhole Christianity at its worst or best. Is there a point where we dismiss his conversion experiences as just a bunch of phony baloney? Well, can you think of anyone else in the Bible who failed three times and was restored to a place of honor? How about a guy named Peter? Three times Peter denied the Lord, and yet Jesus met him on a beach one morning, made breakfast for him, heard his confession, forgave him three times, and restored him. 
I have a soft place in my heart for Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's kind of like an Old Testament pagan Peter. He wants to please God, but then he gets caught up in his power, his wealth, his authority, and he stumbles. And then he repents and he tries again, and he gets caught up in all of it and stumbles and falls, and then he repents again. It reminds me of me. How about you? And you know what? I think God had a soft spot in his heart for Nebuchadnezzar too because he just kept picking him up. There was no good reason to restore this arrogant man to his throne. And yet God came to him when he was crawling around in the fields with the beasts. God saw him when he lifted his eyes to the heavens without a word. God heard the pathetic cry of this humiliated man and restored him. One more time. Yet again, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is one of the great grace stories in the Bible, I think. This pagan, bumbling king who is guided by a tender believer in his up and down journey of faith. In the end, he raised, he's raised up from the dirt of humiliation and he's restored. And the last recorded words are words of praise for the king of heaven who is right and just and faithful. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. I wonder if you find yourself in this story. Maybe you're a Daniel to someone who is living in shame. Others might be pointing or smirking or gossiping. But maybe God is calling you to be the one whose heart is broken for a broken person, calling you to be the one who reaches out to the, the one that everyone else shuns. Who is the humiliated person in your life who needs your voice of mercy to rise above the chorus of condemnation? Maybe that's what God is calling you to do this day. Of course, it's possible that you're feeling more like Nebuchadnezzar. I know there are some here this day who will say that they are in a place of humiliation, on your belly, face in the dirt, crazy with fear or shame or regret. I have been there. Do you understand that God still loves you even after repeated failures? That God still loves you and that he is eager to raise you up, eager to restore your sanity your health, your peace. All Nebuchadnezzar had to do was lift his eyes. Just lift his eyes to heaven and God saw it and restored him again. And if you find yourself this day living in humiliation, maybe it's time for you to lift your eyes to the God who restores would you pray with me? Thank you for this story from your word, O oh Lord. Thank you for this wonderful example of this boisterous, bold, braggadocious man who was knocked low and then by your grace raised back up because even in his hubris, there was a heart that longed to know the true God. I love that image of him in his filth 
his stringy hair, his claws, his disgust, just turning his eyes to heaven. And there you were, waiting, just like the father of the prodigal son, eager to get the first indication of repentance and cry out for help. And thank you, God, that when we do that, you come running. You don't make us wallow. You don't make us wait. You don't make us pay a price or suffer a little bit more to teach us a lesson. The minute we turn our eye to you, you respond with grace, health, sanity, peace. And there are people here this day who need that gift. And if that is you, I invite you, even in your own heart, perhaps literally to open your eyes and look to the heavens and say, God, save me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. I'm broken. I'm bereft. I'm a wreck. I'm shamed and humiliated. No one wants anything to do with me. God, do you and will you save me? And Lord, I pray for those of us who are friends to such a person that we might have the courage to be Daniels when others would smirk and point and gossip and disdain when others express disgust may we be the ones who move close to them at great risk to our own reputation perhaps and speak a word of restoration and hope and peace for we know the truth about ourselves and therefore we understand the truth about others so God make us those who speak in kindness speak in healing, speak tenderness to those broken people in our lives for it is what you taught us to do through Daniel and even more importantly through your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Just think about that this morning. A 
Sure. 